We want to welcome you to the Reformed Informants. This is a podcast devoted to biblical exposition, systematic theology, and practical application for the good of the church. I'm Lance Burrows. I'm TJ Darty, And we are the Reformed Informants. Looks like somebody's got a little birthday gift across the way. What, what'd you get? Birthday. What, what, what'd you get? I need a detailed, itemized list. I got shirts that I need to preach in because I was recycling the same handful of shirts uh, up there each and every Sunday. So replenish the stash. Any bow ties? No, no bow ties this year. Uh, maybe that'll come around Christmas. Uh, Chloe supposedly, in theory, got me some books, uh, but they have been lost in transit. So I'm not sure if that actually happened or if she was, you know, just kind of saying that. Uh, and then I'm rocking the AirPods, man. Parents, parents came through clutch, got got the AirPods, which for those who listen and don't watch, if you watch on YouTube, you probably know this, but I talk with my hands a lot and inevitably at least once an episode, I clang and hit my headphones and pull them out of my ears and it's just a big debacle and then Lance has to take over abruptly. So this is a relief to me to not to have hands free uh, to be able to talk without clunging into uh, the headphone cords that are hanging out of my ear. So yeah, I'm pumped about it. Yeah, half half of the uh, post production work that I've got to do on on the uh, <laughs> podcast recording is edit out all the times that TJ hits his uh, his earphones, punches the mic, shatters yep. his desk. Yeah, all those things happen on a regular basis. So, uh, yeah, post production. What you guys don't see, thankfully, is that Lance cleans up a lot of my messes. So, um, yeah. So, so anyway, yeah, the AirPods. Hopefully, that'll that'll lighten your load a little bit. uh, Post production this week. So we'll see. Yeah, man. Well, uh, you know, I hate to break it to our listeners, but this is our farewell episode. This is the last episode that we are doing in the Christology series. Last Whew. episode that we've got, man. This is uh, this has been a great series. I think it's really spanned the entire summer. You know, kind of like we predicted, modern day prophets here. Um, <laughs> no, not really. Um, but yeah, man. Th- this is we're going to conclude our series uh, today, and um, I think we want to throw out there that we know and understand that there are a lot of areas and topics of discussion that we did not cover. Uh, in the Christology series. So our hope is that as we do round two or volume two of the Reformed Informant Systematic, when we come back around to Christology, uh, we'll try and touch on the areas that we missed. Um, And we'll also, at at random times, just come back to it and and plug in kind of a standalone episode that can be connected to our Christology series. So man, I've enjoyed it. I'm, I'm sad to see it go. Yeah, you said at the beginning of this thing, right? This is the grand distinction of Christianity. Like, there's there's so much that, and if we get this wrong, we get the whole uh, the the whole system of belief wrong. And so it's been so pivotal. Uh, we've done however many other mini series that we've kind of done those doctrines. Uh, this has definitely been the longest, um, and it felt like we were shortchanging a lot of times, just because there's so much that can be said. Um, but I agree, man. Like last this is our 10th episode uh the last two and a half months walking through these things has been such a wonderful time of worship and renewal for me to consider these things and i hope that our listeners have benefited as well thinking about uh the depth of conversation that can be had and we didn't even cover 
the majority of things that could be said. I mean, we, we spend a solid hour talking about each episode and uh, felt like we had to rush through those. So, man, this has been a joy and I'm, I'm thankful for it and looking forward to uh, uh, circling back and having more conversations about uh, the person, the work uh, of Jesus Christ down the road. Uh, here we go. Episode 55. Uh, this is Christology Part 10. And we've titled this episode, The Resurrection, Ascension, and Exaltation of Christ. Uh, So our hope here in this episode is to not put together an apologetic for the resurrection. Okay, I think um, we, we will do that at some point on the podcast, but the point of this episode isn't to prove that the tomb is empty. Okay, that's not where we're going. And we're not trying to put together an apologetic for the ascension either. Um, so we're going to go a different direction with this episode. TJ, since you didn't get to review Christology, I'm going to send it back to you, and you kind of get us going in the direction of why we're choosing implications of uh, the resurrection as opposed to the an apologetic for it. Yeah, that's that's a um, a helpful distinction. I'm glad you you pointed that out. And if you're listening and you didn't know what you don't know what the word apologetic means, uh, apologetics is just a defense. Uh, so when we say this is not going to be an apologetic, it's not, we are not going to uh, make a case for the empty tomb. We're not, we're not going to make a defense uh, for the fact that the resurrection is authentic. We're going to assume because the Bible says it. Uh, it's very explicit. Um, that, that Jesus indeed rose from the dead. Uh, and so what we want to focus on is in uh, the spirit of where we've been. And if you've been with us uh, at, for any uh, length of time in this series, you know we've looked at the person of Christ and we've looked at the work of Christ. So when we look at the work of Christ uh, here, we look at the resurrection and the ascension as sort of the capstone of the work that he came to do. And so this is what culminates all that he came to accomplish. And in doing so with his resurrection and ultimately his ascension, which results in his exaltation, that's where uh, this episode is going. In doing so, we are highlighting the work that Jesus did uh, in in his first uh, advent on this planet. So we'll, we'll, we're not going to talk about his second coming. We're not that that's to come later. We are looking at kind of wrapping up, uh, summarizing his first advent, his first appearance uh, here in the flesh on on planet Earth. Yep, and we've got this episode divided up into three parts or three sections. We'll talk about the resurrection. We'll spend most of the episode there, and then we'll close the episode talking about. Uh, Jesus's ascension and exaltation. You know, those are pretty much linked together as two, um, or linked together as one, rather. Um, but we're going to focus the majority of this episode on uh, the, the resurrection. Now, uh, to get us going here, I've got a quote from Philip H. Towner. He has a gigantic commentary on First and Second Timothy and Titus. And uh, in First Timothy chapter 3, when he's uh, talking about the mystery of Christ, um, he, he says these words, The early church consistently regarded the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus to be the historical event in which God demonstrated his son's vindication. Okay, so I think Towner, he, he summarizes perfectly what direction we're going with this episode. Again, it's not an apologetic, but we want to talk about what are the implications 
of Jesus's resurrection. What, what, what does it truly mean for Christ? What does it truly mean for God? And then what does it mean or how does it apply to the believer? Okay, yeah. Again, we, we've argued on uh, this podcast time after time after time that we that doing theology is applying it to our own lives. Doing theology is knowing and coming to an understanding of the truth, but not stopping there and then practically applying it to our own individual lives. So I think as we look through this episode guide, um, we're, we're going to establish the theology, establish the doctrine, and then as we go along with that, we're going to see how that directly applies to the believer. Yeah, I, Lance, one comment, and then I want you to start start walking through. Let's just walk through these implications. Uh, but one one comment, I loved what you said there. Love this quote from Towner, uh, especially highlighting that it's the historical event, right? Like this is the central event of Christianity in many ways. Um, but I love what you said because this is not, when we think about the resurrection, um, the resurrection of Jesus is not simply, hey, here's a miracle, therefore, Jesus is God. Like, like that's there. No question. That's there. Um, it, it is verifies his deity. It verifies uh, all that he has claimed, all of those things. But it's much more than that. There's a lot that's happening. When Jesus raises from the dead um, on the on Sunday, early Sunday morning, on the third day, and, and the disciples are sorting through what has happened and 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 kind of the, the, the earth's being turned upside down, the world's being turned upside down by this news. And it's, it's, it's permeating the first century world and it's persisted for 2000 years. When that happens, there's a whole lot happening behind the scenes that um, we want to kind of pull back and look at. And so that's, uh, that's where we want to go. We want to say when Jesus resurrected, other things happened as a result, or they it serves as an indication of other things that have happened. And so that's where we want to go. I love the way you've set us up for this. So let's start, Lance. Uh, take us through, give me one whoa, implication, uh, significant theological observation about the resurrection to kick us off here. Yeah, all of these points uh, concerning the resurrection will roll out in this manner. The resurrection demonstrates something. Okay, the resurrection demonstrates something, and I think we've got about half a dozen points, so we're going to need to roll through these quickly. Uh, but the first one is that the resurrection demonstrates that God was still pleased with Christ's person and his work. All right, so uh, if, you, if you've been listening to the Christology series and you've been going along with this, this series has basically been divided up in the person of Christ Okay, one person, two natures, fully God, fully man, and then also his work. So what I want us to see here from the beginning is that God was still pleased with Christ after the resurrection. In other words, nothing about the relationship with Christ in terms of his obedience, keeping the law, um, being without sin, none of that has changed post-resurrection. And I'm, I'm going to get us started here with one verse um, from Matthew, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. Uh, this is when uh, John the Baptist is baptizing Christ. God says audibly, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then in John chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So pre crucifixion, pre-death, pre-resurrection, you see this 
the relationship between God and the Son that, that's in perfect harmony. It's in perfect unison. It, it, it is a perfect relationship um, that, that was not broken. Um, and we see that God was pleased, and we see that Christ was always acting in a manner that would please God. Um, so that, that that's pre-resurrection. Pre-resurrection. TJ, any comments on that? No, that's 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 really good. All throughout his life, the relationship between the Son and the Father was that of perfect harmony, perfect submission, perfect obedience. There was a pleasing relationship. I think that's that's outstanding. That's a great observation. And your point then, where you're going next, I assume, is that post-resurrection, that's still intact. Yeah, absolutely. So what we want to see here is that in Christ's death, what he accomplished pleased the Father, and the Father resurrects Christ to show this. In other words, they're, like, you t- like you just said, TJ, their relationship it hasn't been broken. Okay, It's still unified. How, how do we know this? Well, post-resurrection, according to Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, uh, Jesus came up and spoke to them, and here's what Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, I know this verse doesn't specifically say that God was pleased with Christ, but it's implied. Mm-hmm. It's implied. I mean, why would God give Christ all authority in heaven and on earth if he just somehow botched his death? Yeah, and, and the crucifixion yeah. and those events didn't play out according to plan. Yeah, that's a good observation. The other, another verse that comes to mind... Uh, kind of teasing the ascension, which comes in, uh, we see it in in uh, Acts chapter 1 in particular, is the most explicit uh, mention of the ascension. Uh, but Jesus tells the disciples, the apostles, he says, you will be my witnesses, right? So, so he is speaking authoritatively, uh, representing the Godhead, representing the Father himself. So he, like you said, if if his death was a uh, was he somehow botched this whole thing, uh, he wouldn't have the authority to say you're going to represent me right like like in in making this statement post resurrection uh he's demonstrating as you as you pointed out he is demonstrating that the father is still pleased with his work and with his person because he gets to be the one who is represented uh by the witnesses uh that he commissions in Acts chapter 1 classic TJ Darty over there classic not even on the guide oh man this is why I signed this guy up. Well, some, every now and then you get lucky. So thanks for thanks for keeping me around. Okay, point number two. Yeah, the resurrection demonstrates that Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the law of God. The resurrection demonstrates that Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the law of God. Now I'm going to send it back over to TJ to to read through this Hebrews eight text. And one of the things that we do on the podcast frequently is we do biblical exposition. So we've got some lengthier passages on this episode guide. But as we go through these passages, we're going to stop and make a few comments here and there uh, to kind of flush out this argument that we're making. So uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 23 through 28, TJ is going to walk us through that. We're going to make comments about that. But this text demonstrates that Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the law of God. Yeah, and if you are just now joining the podcast or maybe you bounce around episode to episode, the previous episode 
covers this at length, right? Talks about uh, the the perfection of his obedience and his uh, sinless life and the way in which he fulfilled God's law. So a lengthy discussion of this occurs in the previous episode, but the resurrection demonstrates and verifies what we say in that episode. So Hebrews chapter 8, uh, verses 23 to 28 begins, says the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood Permanently, so there's a a distinction made immediately, right? You have priests uh, in the in the in the past, the Old Testament system of priests, the sacrifices being made. There were many of them, and there was a lineage, right? Like the next line of priests had to continue because these priests continued to die. Uh, they they weren't able to intercede for the people uh, forever. Uh, however, Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever post resurrection. He continues in life. He holds his priesthood permanently. Lance, comments on that? Now, again, man, the, the book of Hebrews has, I feel like we've gone to Hebrews in every part of this 10-part 10, this 10 series. And what's so unique and so profound about Christ is that he, he, he isn't prevented by death, like the text mm. says and like you just explained. His priesthood holds forever and permanently, and we see that in the resurrection. Yeah, exactly. So it continues, verse 25, Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So post-resurrection, Jesus has uh, has an eternal life that has not been uh, taken from him, right? His life is not taken from him in the death, but because he resurrected from the dead, because he defeated death, uh, and on his own, he has now uh, been granted access to intercede for us forever. And so, therefore, as a priest, he is able, uh, unlike the priest who came before him, he's able to intercede forever. He lives always, he always lives to make intercession for them. Uh, for it was fitting, verse 26 continues, and then Lance, I want you to hop in here. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So here's a, a an emphasis here on his perfection and his perfect obedience to the law of God. Lance, observations, walk us through some of that. Man, you, you nailed it there in verse 26. We have such a high priest, holy, uh, he's sinless, set apart. He's innocent. He's undefiled. He's without spot. He's separated from sinners. Again, we're highlighting here his perfection, his perfect obedience. And and one comment I'd like to make, I think we can probably move on uh, to either verse twenty-seven or go on to the to the next point. But one comment I'd like to make is that uh, the priests. Under the Old Testament sacrificial system, they were offering sacrifices for their own sins. They were offering mm. up sacrifices for their own sins. Jesus, he is a high priest. However, he's not offering up a sacrifice for his own sin because he was perfectly obedient to the law of God. So that's why the text says, look, this high priest, Christ, he's holy. He's innocent. He's undefiled. He's separate from sinners. Uh, that's because he he indeed is he he, he has no right. sin because of the way in which he 
perfectly obeyed the Father. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews says there in verse 27, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then of the sins of the people, because he did once for all when he offered up himself. So these priests offered daily uh, these sacrifices over and over, first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus doesn't need to do that. Uh, He doesn't need to offer up sins for, for himself. And he has once for all, we've already discussed this in previous episodes, uh, offered up his own life as a sacrifice to cover the sins of people forever uh, for his elect, for those who have been, uh, who, who repent and believe. And so uh, the point here and what what we need to draw out of this is not simply that Jesus lived a life in perfect obedience to the law of God. We've already covered that, but that this is demonstrated by the resurrection. The resurrection verifies this because Jesus is able to continue to serve as a priest post-resurrection. He is able to continue uh, to make intercession for the saints uh, because he has a perfect, uh, the, the, the life of perfect obedience is on his record. That's who he is. And so this is demonstrated uh, and made obvious to us by the resurrection. And so the resurrection then verifies or validates that that type of claim. Lance, any other comments on that before we move on? No, nope, man, that's man, that's gold. Uh, yeah, point number three here, uh, the resurrection demonstrates that God accepted in the person of Christ the satisfaction of his wrath for all those who would believe in him. So here we have a satisfaction of God's wrath. The resurrection demonstrates that God's wrath was truly satisfied. Uh, God's wrath on what? Well, remember, this is God's character and his nature demands justice for sinners. Therefore, according to Romans 1, since people have sinned, also Romans 3, God's wrath is on those sinners. But we're arguing here and trying to articulate that the resurrection demonstrates that Christ truly did take the wrath that was due for all of those who will believe in Christ. God sent him for this purpose. John 3.17 says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 says, Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Okay, so we, we have here that, that Christ, he literally came to do this. This is part of his work. Again, this wasn't an afterthought. Christ wasn't on the cross and said, man, this would be a great time to take the wrath of God. This is why he was sent into the world. That's right. And even the apostles post-resurrection, they they recognize this. We see this post-resurrection New Testament writings, 1 John 2, verse 2. Jesus is the propitiation uh, for our sins, the satisfaction of God's wrath, the appeasement uh, of the wrath of God. So this is uh, post-resurrection. Post the time of Christ, post-resurrection, the apostles knew that their sins uh, had been covered, that the the wrath of God had been paid uh, in their place. Uh, 1 John 4.10, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice uh, for our sins. So this is critical for the believer, right? Like, Like as a believer, the wrath of God is waiting to be poured out on those who are in unbelief. The only reason why the wrath of God is not waiting to be poured out on those who do believe is because by the resurrection, we know that the wrath of God has already been satisfied for those, right? Like 
it's not satisfied. That God's wrath is not satisfied for everyone. It's only satisfied for the elect, for those who believe, those who repent. But we know that it's satisfied because of the resurrection. The resurrection, the resurrection demonstrates that that wrath has been satisfied. Because if it hadn't been satisfied, Jesus would have been just like every other animal that had been sacrificed for thousands of years leading up to his time on the cross. And that was he'd still be in the ground. His blood would still be spilled. Uh, there would be no life in him, just like all those other sacrifices. Yeah, I would just, man, I would just add to that, that this this is what the entire New Testament teaches, okay? This, this is exactly what the New Testament teaches, but I think sometimes I do this, you know, when I say this is what the New Testament teaches, sometimes I detach that from the apostles actually writing to churches to local mm. churches to get these truths across and you know in other words you know you quoted um from first john you know john, john he, he's he's writing to a group of believers and of course there's other texts we could go to paul writing to romans but the the, the apostles want to make this absolutely clear that yes christ did resurrect the tomb is empty however there are implications that directly affect you christian you know so mm. Um, we can't detach ourselves when we say, yes, this is what the New Testament teaches, but somehow not think about, well, this is the local church and Christians that were receiving these documents so they could be taught in the ways of Christ. Yeah, that's man, that's outstanding. I think that's an easy to overlook uh, observation there as well. Uh, number four, uh, the resurrection demonstrates that Christ's shedding of blood was accepted. So Christ's shedding of blood, um, we know from the Old Testament that the that every time Israel would seek to atone for sin, blood was shed. Like it wasn't just, hey, let me just uh, you know, say a prayer or or ask somebody to uh, you know, do such and such and, and maybe we can all cover, maybe I can offer some money or some like blood was shed. Like that's what the sacrificial system did. Uh, and then of course in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews so critical to this, uh, we see in chapter nine, verse 12, that not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood was the, the, uh, sacrifice of Jesus accepted. Uh, verse 19 of chapter 10, uh, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. So his shedding of blood then, uh, as the sacrifice was accepted. And we know this because of the resurrection. And of course, Lance, I want you to comment on this, but we know that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And so the shedding of Jesus's blood is critical, but the fact that there was a resurrection after the shedding of his blood demonstrates that that shedding of blood was accepted. Yeah, and again, you quoted from Hebrews. Go back and read Hebrews. Multiple times in the book of Hebrews, it talks about blood. I don't want that to sound a little bit morbid there, but it's talking about the blood of the animals in the Old Testament, and then it's talking about the fulfillment of that in, in the blood of Jesus Christ. And uh, TJ, I mean, I've got to take us back to Genesis, obviously, oh, to talk about this. Weird. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Shocker here. I, I think I know where you're going. I'm looking forward to this. Go ahead. But this this idea, again, of the shedding of blood goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sin. They try and clothe themselves. 
Of course, they can't clothe themselves with their own righteousness or righteousness that they've worked for. They need to be clothed from an external source. That's where God comes on the scene and he clothes them in animal skin. Um, but then you jump forward just a few chapters and we're told in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, after the flood, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So again, you see even moving forward to the Noahic covenant that there is shedding of blood, which is a soothing aroma to God. That's what he required, but then ultimately is fulfilled in the shedding of the the blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah, and that that's such an important point. You know, when you said a, a moment ago, Lance, that this is what the New Testament teaches, right? Like there's there's a teaching in the New Testament that just permeates that. Well, in the same way, the Old Testament, once the law is established, and even prior to the law being established, as you've already pointed out in Genesis, there is a teaching of the seriousness of sin and the necessity for blood to be shed to cover it. But when you get post-Jesus, you don't see that anymore because that blood has been accepted, and we know that because of the resurrection. That's the point post-resurrection, that changes. Uh, there, there's a, a new uh, understanding that has occurred. There's a new teaching in the New Testament, and it's not of the sacrifices that need to be made, but the sacrifice that has been made. And that is validated, verified, demonstrated by the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, man. I mean, that's, what, that's why we don't see the apostles uh, performing sacrifices, you right. know, before in the middle or after a you know Sunday morning church service they recognized and knew this and that's why 2000 years later you know you're not implementing sacrifices in Paris I don't think that's no. part of the uh you know the new membership qualification thing you no. know? that's that's not why I needed new shirts for <laughs> for my preaching routine right I didn't, I'm not doused in blood every week because it's been accepted and it's been accepted and, and the validation the proof of that the demonstration of that it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right. Now, moving on to the fifth point here, the resurrection demonstrates that Christ's death was a real death. It demonstrates that Christ's death was a real death. Now, I think this is obvious. In order to be resurrected, you have to actually be dead. You know, we see evidence of this in John chapter 11 when Jesus raises John the Baptist from the dead a couple more times. In the New Testament, he's raising people from the dead, resurrecting. Well, of course, that implies that that, that Jesus was actually dead. Now, again, we're mm. not making an apologetic for this, but I think it's interesting to note quickly here that even people that were opposed to Christ, even people that were in opposition to the uh, disciples and Christianity, for that matter, even they acknowledge that Jesus died. Roman soldiers who pierced his side, they know how to execute people. That's what they did. They pierced the side to make sure that he was dead. Uh, second, Pilate multiple times is shocked that Jesus died so quickly, and he even demands that guards be stationed at the tomb. Okay, so he, he knows that Jesus is dead. He knows, by the way, that Jesus has prophesied that he will resurrect, so he, he, he sends guards uh, to oversee the tomb. But even the Pharisees, chief priests, and the elders uh, of Jerusalem recognize that Jesus died. And, and that's critical to the resurrection because the resurrection is a hoax if Jesus isn't actually dead. Yeah, that's, man, you, you, you nailed it. Uh, 
again, this is not an apologetic for the actual resurrection. We're not seeking to prove and validate that, but there are uh, there are plenty who have suggested, well, perhaps Jesus didn't actually die. Perhaps he just fainted or perhaps he faked his death. No, like he actually died. And we know that because he resurrected from the dead. And we know uh, based on the accounts, not only of the biblical witnesses, but of those outside of scripture who have no stake in Christianity, as you've already mentioned, or those who would actually prefer if he hadn't done this, uh, they knew what had happened was was supernatural. They knew something uh, beyond the ordinary had happened, and they knew that Jesus had died. And then we see accounts of him being alive after that point. So we know that he resurrected, and that resurrection is a demonstration of uh, his actual death. That's a that's a great observation. Uh, number. Oh, go, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I guess an implication that I would add to that is that in order for Jesus to pay the penalty for sin, there has to be shedding of blood, like we talked about on the previous point, but the consequence of sin is death. In order for him to actually pay the penalty, mm. he has to die. You know, he can't just, his blood can't be shed, and, you know, it can be a horrific event, but he somehow right. s- still stays alive. He he actually had, the, the payment of sin, the consequence of sin is death. Romans 6, 23, the soul That's that right. sin shall die. And so, in order for Jesus' sacrifice to be complete, he has to be dead. Again, this isn't apologetic for his death, but he he literally has to die. And that's, that's what the right. New Testament teaches. And, and that's pivotal, leading us into our next point, because the resurrection demonstrates that Christ's people have forgiveness of those sins. So we, as, as, as human beings, all of us who are uh, in Adam, as we've discussed before on the podcast, all of us who are in Adam— all human beings are born with a sin nature, and we have to account for that sin. Uh, as you just mentioned, Romans 6.23, the wages, the penalty, the payment, the recompense for that sin is death. The only way that we are not going to face, and, and we will all face physical death, but uh, there's the only way that we won't face a uh, spiritual death, the, the serious death of eternal death, is if those sins are covered, atoned for, wiped away, uh, the rats uh, poured on someone else. That's the only way it can happen, the vicarious atonement that we've talked about before. And we know that we have that, that, that people uh, in Christ have that forgiveness of sins because of the resurrection. The, the resurrection validates, it proves this to us. Uh, and we know this, I love this verse, I'm so glad you included this in our guide but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Or in some translations, it's futile. You're still in your sins. If Jesus went to the cross and in the most heroic and passionate and self-sacrificing and beautiful moment, he sacrificed his life and died on the cross, but he didn't raise from the dead, well... That's a good story, I guess, but it certainly doesn't do anything for you, right? Like he has to raise from the dead in order for the sin to be forgiven, uh, in order for there to be uh, eternal life for any of us post our lives, resurrection uh, long term. And so that's so critical for us to recognize that the the, the resurrection is not just, hey, there's a heroic event and that's going to like really get us excited one Sunday a year on Easter. Like, no, this is, this is why we have, this is demonstration that we have forgiveness of sins. I can, I know I can lay my head down tonight on my pillow knowing if I don't wake up tomorrow, I'm going to be with Christ because my sins have been forgiven. And I know that. Yep. And that takes us into the next point that's connected there in 
the argument that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but the resurrection demonstrates that death has been conquered. No longer are held responsible for your particular sins in terms of wrath and judgment. You've been forgiven for your sins like you just articulated, but now you also conquer death. And you conquer death because Christ has conquered death. The resurrection shows and demonstrates that death truly has been conquered. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 through 57. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it's not of yourself, not of your works, but it's through the person and work of Christ. And God demonstrates through Christ and his resurrection that death truly has been conquered. That's that's outstanding. And based on that, one final observation about the resurrection, especially when we think about death being conquered, is that the resurrection demonstrates that we can have hope for our own future resurrection. Now, we'll talk about eschatology, the study of the end times and future resurrections down the road, what that looks like. That That's a, a separate series that we, we can't get into right now. But Again, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says in verse 19, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are the most to be pitied. He says, if if our life is, if all our hope is wrapped up in this life for anybody, he says, Christians, man, you guys have the most miserable existence. You should be pitied uh, more than anyone else because you uh, don't have a way to to wrap up every bit of your hope in this life. Our hope is in the life to come. And that's what Paul uh, knows. He says, yes, if we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. But he knows that our hope is not in this life only because our heart, our hope is also in the life to come. And that hope it is founded on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that serves, it serves as the uh, an unshakable foundation of our hope for the future. And that's what we see because of the resurrection of Jesus. We have hope that we can have a resurrection as well. Yeah, man, you're going to come across uh, Philippians chapter three, the, the, the last few verses of chapter three and be able to touch on, on, on some of those truths that you just mentioned there, TJ. Yeah, um, that's right. Chapter 3, verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Um, so I think that attaches uh, to the point that you were just making to uh, conclude our segment on uh, on resurrection. Anything else that you want to add to the, the just the resurrection discussion in general? I don't think so, man. It, it's I, I say that, but I do have one one thing to say. Yep. I, and I made this observation before, um, I, as a preacher of the gospel, am very prone to focus on the death of Christ. I, I just am. I, I just think that there's so much to be said about that vicarious atonement. There's so much to be said about that sacrifice, about the wrath of God being satisfied. I mean, there's so much gospel in the death of Christ. But if Friday is the only, the only scene in that story, then the gospel is incomplete and the resurrection of Jesus, which is so often just kind of, I don't want to say downplayed or, but like 
we we talk about the resur- or we talk about the uh, the sacrifice of Christ, and then we talk about the reign of Christ eternally. And we, if we don't talk about the resurrection, like we just miss so much. And I'm so prone to do that uh, to focus in on the sacrifice, to focus in on the cross, but the resurrection is the most earth shattering miracle that has ever occurred. And, uh, there is no Christianity without it. Uh, in fact, if you take the resurrection away, uh, you take away all that there is in, in the Christian life. And so we have to have, this is a linchpin doctrine for us and, and we hold to it firmly and unwaveringly and unapologetically. And so I, I'm so glad that we've talked about it here in this episode. Yeah. And the, and the resurrection is celebrated beyond Easter. Of course, yeah. we're thankful yeah. for the you know the special emphasis uh, that that is always placed on the resurrection during that time of year. But in reality, when uh, the church gathers on Sunday morning, that that right. gathering is based on Jesus's resurrection that Sunday morning two thousand years ago. So the linchpin, right. absolutely, Christianity does not exist w- w- without the resurrection of Christ. Yeah, I love that, man. Like, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Like, that's yeah. the point. That's why the saints gathered from the first century onward. The The time of worship was normally on Saturday, the Sabbath. Christians began to meet on Sunday because that's the Resurrection Day. And that became the Lord's Day. We've talked about that in previous episodes. And so that's been, that's been a helpful discussion. So... That's part one, talking about the resurrection. Much more quickly, we'll, we'll run through the ascension and the exaltation. So Lance, where do we want to go when we talk about the ascension of Christ? There's really only two passages uh, that speak directly to this. Where would you go? How do we want to frame this conversation? Yeah, you're right. There's only two passages. And in fact, those passages could both be read probably in, in, in two or three minutes, there, there, mm-hmm. you know, there's only about a dozen or so verses that even uh, talk about this particular uh, time frame. Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1 um, is where you'll find the text on the ascension. The, the, the ascension, just to give you a little time frame of when it takes place, the ascension is taking place 40 days after uh, the resurrection of Jesus, Okay. And I think you can find that in Acts chapter 1, that that Jesus was alive for 40 days post-resurrection, preaching and teaching the gospel. Of course, you can read those things. But in terms of the ascension, it's only in uh, Luke 24, Acts 1, uh, just a few verses. Um, But John Calvin says of the ascension, The Lord, by his ascension to heaven, has opened up access to the heavenly kingdom, which Adam had shut. Now, I absolutely love the, the the picture that he paints there is mm-hmm. that Christ ascension into heaven is it, it's an opening up of the heavens it's the the full mediation of his person and work that through Christ and Christ alone we have access to heaven um which we don't have necessarily time to get into on this episode uh but what Calvin says is, is so true about uh, Christ's ascension. Just a couple things to note, then we'll get into the implications here. Um, first off is that his person ascended. The God-man ascended. Now, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what Jesus was like post-resurrection, but the text is clear that Jesus post-resurrection is still the God-man. We've, we have, now, we've articulated that earlier in this Christology series. At this point, I don't remember what episode that was. It would be the hypostatic union, I would believe, because it would be an eternal union of his two natures, right? That from this point forward, that's that's how we would understand that. 
Yeah, so he he is resurrecting and ascending as as the God Man, as the God Man, and will forever remain uh, the God Man. Now, another uh, just point of emphasis I would make here is that the ascension was visibly seen. It was visibly seen. So it wasn't Jesus just randomly off in, uh, you know, uh, off amongst himself uh, with no visible uh, representation, but people were there. Uh, they are uh, listed in Acts chapter 1. Uh, we have angels that are present on the scene, and this pictures uh, the earth to heaven, Jesus leaving one realm, going to another realm, uh, which also gives us confidence that heaven is an actual reality because Jesus leaves this earthly realm and he, mm-hmm. he, he, go, he goes somewhere. Where right. does he go? Or We know he goes to heaven. Right. Um, so th- those are just some details that I think are worth mentioning. This isn't necessarily an apologetic, like we said, but that rolls us into just a couple implications here. Well, w- one one comment on that, and I don't I don't want to sidetrack, but I do want us to think about this. We we we've emphasized this a lot on the podcast, but that all of theology is connected, right? Like a- anything that we have uh, that we say today can overlap into other doctrines, and what we say uh, has an impact on that. So the reason why I bring that up is because when you mention rightly that his person ascended. Uh, that is that his God, the the God man, not just it's not just the divine nature that went to heaven and his human nature, his body is still somewhere else. Uh, it's not vice versa. It's not that his body is in heaven and his divine spirit is somewhere else. Like he he as the person of Jesus Christ has ascended. Well, that conversation uh, comes into major play. It comes into play majorly when we talk about the Lord's Supper. When you start talking about the what are the elements uh, of the supper. Uh, represent are they are, are is Jesus physically present in the body or excuse me in the bread and in the wine? Uh, that's a, a conversation that a, a loud and very dramatic and intense conversation happened uh, has happened for hundreds of years, but especially 500 years ago. Like Luther and Zwingli, I mean, they dueled over this and they argued vehemently over this. And the question became: If Jesus is physically in the bread and in the wine, then how? Is he not in, at the right hand of the Father if he's ascended? So I, I say that not to get off on a rabbit trail, but to say that this does matter. Uh, this this has implications even for the Christian life today when we take the Lord's Supper at our local congregation. So I, I think that's just worth mentioning to say that he, his body and his his person entirely, who he is, the God-man of Jesus, ascended, uh, left this earth, as recorded in Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1, and went to be at the right hand of the Father. So uh, I, I think that's worth pointing out. Uh, Lance, why was that such a big deal from from the believer standpoint? Why did Jesus have to do this uh, in order for the believer uh, to take the, the, the next step spiritually in, in God's redemptive plan? Well, Jesus had to ascend. He had to leave because he said he would leave, first off, uh, he, he prophesied that he had to go away, but he had to go away because he was going to send a helper, okay? And, and we see mm. this being the Holy Spirit. Jesus, it, it, it was necessary that Jesus ascend, because when he ascended, as he promised, he was sending the Holy Spirit as his replacement, as his replacement. Uh, John chapter 16, verse 7 says, and this is Jesus speaking, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, so Jesus says it is absolutely necessary that I go away. He actually says it is to your advantage that I go away. This is good Mm. for you. This is good that I ascend and I am no longer here because once I go away, I am sending the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Helper, the the Advocate. I am sending him to you. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Luke writes, Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Again, so Jesus' ascension, of course, it's, it's magnifying his person, his work, his completed work, TJ, like you've said, but it's also preparing the way. It's very John the Baptist-esque. It's preparing yeah. the way for the Holy Spirit to be sent uh, not many days from That's right, which was the next phase in God's plan of redemptive history, right? The, the Spirit was to come. We are now in the age of the Holy Spirit and the church. And so Jesus says, as, as antithetical to our, to our understanding as it might seem, it's to your advantage that I go. It's to your advantage that I ascend because this is God's plan, is that is, and that is to send the Spirit who is not bound physically the same way Jesus is, right? Jesus is confined to a human body. Uh, the Holy Spirit is not. And so um, we see the Trinity at, at work here, and I think that that's so pivotal uh, for us. And so that's, that's the ascension of Jesus, which in, in many ways kind of culminates or completes his work and it, 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 the ascension results in the last section that we're going to discuss here, and that's the exaltation. So, Lance, any, anything else before we jump into the exaltation? No, I, I would just say, as you're making this transition, I'm going to swing it back to you to get this thing rolling. But if you um, work through different systematic theologies, you see some that will uh, lump together ascension and exaltation. You you will also see others that put exaltation as as a, as a third category. So, I mean, you could divide that up either. They're both tied to one another, but I think we've just done this um, maybe in terms of it's, I think it's more chronological to yeah. put the exaltation that this final point of Christ's work here in, in the exaltation. So I'm going to send it back to you, T. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a good observation because the ascension almost sort of marks the transition, as you pointed out from the, earthly realm to the heavenly realm, but the completion of the ascension is ultimately the exaltation. And the exaltation uh, is the indication that his work is finally complete, uh, that everything that he came to accomplish in his first advent has been accomplished. And we know this uh, because of the language that permeates the New Testament, which says that as he uh, ascended, he sat down at the right hand of God. So we see this frequently uh, referenced in the New Testament. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, we've already looked at. Uh, so you'll remember that it says that when in verse 12, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. Remember that was contrasted with the priests who were standing daily. And so verse 12 of Hebrews 10 says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. We see the same 
uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, one of those high Christological passages which speaks to the majesty of Jesus, says that he sat down at the right hand of his majesty on high. Uh, Ephesians 1, 20 uh, says that he raised him from the dead and seated him, talking about God the Father raised the Son and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. First Peter 3.22, speaking of Jesus, says that he who is at the right hand of God having gone into heaven. So when Jesus is asc- uh, when Jesus is resurrected, uh, which by the way was a Trinitarian act of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, uh, all working together as uh, three persons of the Godhead, but Jesus uh, resurrects from the dead, and then he ascends 40 days later, but the ascension, he doesn't just leave the earth and and just kind of wait around and kind of, he goes to the right hand of the father and he sits down at his right hand and he is exalted. Uh, His feet are placed uh, up as a with the earth as his footstool, like he 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 is uh, lifted up. Uh, Philippians uh, chapter two says that he, he's given a name that's above all names. He's exalted mm. to an even higher place uh, because of the work that he's done, and because post resurrection he is now the God Man. He's taken on flesh, and so uh, there's there's an exaltation, a a lifting up of his name and of his person because of the work that he has done. And the exaltation indicates that his work is complete. Lance, add to that. What do you got, man? Come, man, come on, dude. Add, add, just add something. I just talked for nah. 10 minutes. so I, w- I would just add, hit rewind and listen to that again. Man, I, I appreciate you walking through all, all of those texts. Again, showing that the entire New Testament makes this point. It's not an obscure text uh, you know, that we're doing hermeneutical gymnastics with. But this mm. is just... This was the teaching of the early church. This is what they understood to be true about Christ um, after he ascended. I I think the only thing that I would add to that, TJ, would be that this has always been the plan of God. This Mm. has always been the plan of God. In fact, uh, if you go back to Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Mm. In other words, the book of Hebrews just goes on to explain how this is true in the person of Christ. Christ is absolutely seated at the right hand of God because this was the predetermined plan of God, the one that was prophesied about in the Old Testament and ultimately brought to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. Again, this is all of Revelation. This is all of Scripture. This is what we try and do on the Reformed Informants podcast, man. We want everybody to see that the doctrines that we hold to and the doctrines that we believe are built on the totality of Scripture, not not, uh, yeah. not just the book of Hebrews, right? Yeah, well, yeah, and that's, what I was gonna, that's exactly what I was going to say to kind of wrap this up. I love that you pulled in uh, the psalm, the psalmist there, uh, because now you've got four distinct authors in just those verses. There are others that we could go to, but we've we've hit four authors, right? You've got the author of Hebrews, who we don't know exactly who that is. Uh, we've got uh, the Psalter in Psalm 110. Uh, you've got Paul in Ephesians 1. You've got Peter in 1 Peter 3. There's four different uh, authors to make that same statement that 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 covers, it spans uh, thousands of years of, of revealed uh, word uh, the revelation of God, and it all speaks to the same thing, that post-resurrection, 
He is exalted and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And there's so much majesty and beauty in that idea that he's seated. His work is done. And that's really where this this conversation, these 10 episodes comes to an end because you think about the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Well, the work of Christ is complete as he sits at the right hand of the Father. He's been exalted. He's been lifted up. Uh, he's been given a name that's above all names. He, he is God himself, and he is at the right hand of the Father. And so uh, down the road, we'll talk about his return. We'll talk about the uh, r- the return of Christ. That, that's going to come in the, in the eschatology, the study of the last things, because this spans his first advent. This spans his first uh, trip to the earth when he takes on flesh and descends and comes to the earth. And you reference John 3.17. He's not coming to judge the world in John 3.17, but he is when he returns. So we're going to talk about the second advent of Christ down the road when we get to the end of our uh, our study of this systematic. So, uh, Lance, any other comments or observations before we hop into the initiative and sign off here? Well, I mean, this is, this, this is normally the point in the episode where we try and put together a historical argument, mm-hmm. but uh, we are one hour into this bad boy, so... We're going to we're going to put the brakes on and uh, we'll probably come back to a historical argument for some of these truths um, at at some point in the future. So I think that takes us into the initiative. And I I tried, at least in our initiative for today, to bring in a little historical argument here as we close just to kind of dabble into it. And also anybody from church history can definitely articulate what I'm trying to get across better. Um, So. So for the uh, for my initiative, I'm going to quote from the Heidelberg Catechism, um, written in 1563. Uh, of course, one of the most profound uh, Reformation uh, confessional documents. Um, but they speak on this document rather speaks on the resurrection and Christ's ascension and whatnot. So I'm going to read for that, read from that rather for my for my initiative. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism says first. By his resurrection, he has overcome death, so that he might make us partakers of the righteousness which by his death he has obtained for us. Secondly, we also are now by his power raised up to new life. And thirdly, the resurrection of Christ is to us a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. And I love the way that that ends. We've laid out the theology. We've laid out the doctrine. But what, what's the application? Well, one of the application points is, is that Jesus is the sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. Amen. And, and that's our hope. Hmm. Man, that's so good. Um, gosh, I, I, I wasn't ready for for the um, the initiative today, but but immediately as you were reading that and you said someone from church history could say it better than I can. Well, yeah, you, you, you nailed it. I think that goes for both of us. And I, I thought of this quote from, from uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones and it's, it's lengthy. So I'm going to skip through parts of it, but, but I read this quote uh, to conclude uh, the, the sermon I preached on Easter Sunday. And I love this quote from Lloyd Jones. Here's what he says. He says this morning, he's preaching to his congregation. He says, as I look over this evil, sinful world, It does not depress me because I expect from it nothing better. Whatever may be going against me, whatever may be happening in my own body, this is what I must expect because of sin. But though I die, I shall rise again. 
I shall see him face to face. I shall see him as he is, and I shall be like him, like him in a glorified body with every power renewed. And I shall be living in a realm that is incorruptible and undefiled, a realm that can never fade away. That is the living hope of the resurrection. That is the message of this Easter morning. And he goes on, Lloyd-Jones goes on with much more power in his words saying there's just so much hope that's wrapped up in this. But that's really what I want to take away. When I think about the resurrection, the ascension, uh, the exaltation, the theology behind it is critical. And I, we've spent an hour talking about it. I think it's worth our time. Uh, but man, there's just there's hope wrapped up in that. So whatever's happening in our world right now, um, which continues to seem to spiral out of control in so many ways, there's hope because of the resurrection. So wherever you are in life, uh, wherever, uh, whatever you're facing, um, whatever challenges, whatever struggles, whatever, uh, whatever might be in your, um, just in your focus right now, just all the things that are, there's hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. And, and there's hope that only the resurrection of Jesus can, can provide. And I hope that that's, uh, hope that that's a message that we can all cling to, uh, during this time. Man, I appreciate those words. Gosh. The doctor, Lloyd-Jones, yeah. just, what? You, man. Dude, you, you nailed it. You said people from church history just say it better than we can. And that's that's why we lean on church history, right? We stand on the shoulders of those who come before us. So, Lance, any other observations for us? Oh, that's a Christology series. That's a wrap. Summer's Gosh. over. Bring yeah. on the cold weather. Yes, it's time. Next week is Labor Day weekend for our recording, so we won't record an episode next week. We'll be back at some point in the future, uh, potentially pre-baby, but potentially post-baby. We don't know. So stick around, and we'll be sure and get back to you as soon as we can. Uh, In the meantime, if you're not doing this already, make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, You can like us on Facebook at Reformed Informants. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at our underscore informants, and you can find links to all of our social media platforms, all of our previous episodes, and our links to our uh, Reformed Informants gear. You can find all of that at our website at www.themajestiesmen.com slash Reformed Informants. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics of discussion, feel free to email us at reformedinformants at gmail.com. 